0: Welcome to Sunny in Seattle with your host, Sunny Joy. And coming up on today's show, Sunny will be welcoming author Lotta Dan, also known as Mrs. D. So join them as she returns to the show to discuss her latest book, The Wine O'Clock Myth. If you ever question your relationship with alcohol, and if you think you drink too much, or you've suspected that alcohol is not all it's cracked up to be, you won't wanna miss Lotta's inspiring story and the latest book. And now I welcome your host for the day, Sunny Joy. And good morning, welcome to Sunny in Seattle. I'm your host, Sunny Joy McMillan. And we're here every Friday for Sunny in Seattle from 9 to 10 a.m. on Alternative Talk 1150 a.m. KKNW in Seattle, as well as 103.3 KPCA in Petaluma, bringing you amazing guests and resources that will help you create a life of peace, joy, freedom and purpose. It is radio that positively shines. And if you can't catch the show live, you can always access those show archives. Those are found at 1150kknw.com You can also find the show on iTunes and podcast one. And my website for connecting and finding out more is goldenoversoul.com. That is goldenoversoul.com. And one quick housekeeping to uh, mention here before we dive in with our fantastic guest today. I just want to mention that it is not too late uh, for you to join the Soul Digger Practice Your Practice Challenge. Um, The challenge will run from October 26th until November 2nd. And you can find out more and register by uh, going to my website, which again is goldenoversoul.com and it's under the events page. And so this challenge is really about uh, providing accountability and inspiration for you to practice your practice. And some people will call this your spiritual practice. Maybe it's your morning practice, but really it's any activities or behaviors that you engage in on a regular basis to connect with you know, your most essential self, your soul, if you believe you have one of those, to something greater than you, whether that's the universe or God or the force or whatever you like to call it, anything that returns you home to yourself and gives you perspective, um, which I think at this point where we are right now in current times, perspective and a grounded foundation in the wisest, highest part of yourself is really necessary. But I also notice in my own life, so I assume it must be the same for many others out there, that when things get busy and stressful and hectic, usually the practice is the first thing to go out the door uh, because we feel like we need to prioritize the things that are on a deadline or uh, immediate, you know, children screaming, cats vomiting, which I've talked about before uh, last week. So, Uh, This will be an opportunity uh, for you to come together with a group of like-minded, like-hearted individuals to practice for uh, seven days. We'll kick it off with a live stream, which will help you either create a practice that feels good to you for the next seven days or will help you dial in the one you have. And then we'll get going and we'll have opportunity for seven days to practice your practice. And we will end with a grand finale live stream with prizes um, on November 2nd, which is no accident the day before Election Day here in the United States. Um, so it's, uh, I think not a bad thing to get your spiritual muscle beefed up before we go into, um, you know, what may be a little bit of a tumultuous time based on how things are playing out pre-election. So, uh, again, the website, uh, to go to, to sign up for that is goldenoversoul.com under the events page. So now let's welcome on our wonderful guest. And I'm really excited because this guest has been on Sunny in Seattle before. I'm noticing now that the show has been around for a while, I have the fa- fantastic opportunity to reconnect with former guests as they bring more work into the world. And this time is it's no accident. Uh, a Dan has a new book out. Um, I'm very excited to share that with you. Um, it's called The Wine O'Clock Myth. And just as by way of background, um, Lada, I'll tell you a little bit about her and then we'll bring her on and talk about this latest book. Lotta Dan has a degree in broadcasting and communications and a master's degree in film, television, and media studies. She worked as a TV journalist, producer, and director until she got sober at age 39, at which point her career changed as much as her interior life did. She now works largely from her home in the hills of Wellington, New Zealand, which she shares with her husband, three sons, and a black Labrador. She runs a busy social media, um, well, I say social media accounts, multiples, promoting recovery. She She manages the highly successful online community Living Sober, which you can find at livingsober.org.nz. And lately, she's been taking regular trips away to run day-long workshops on addiction and recovery. Um, You can find her on social media. Her name there is usually Mrs. D. Mrs. D is going without. Mrs. D, alcohol-free. But the website that she runs that I just mentioned, um, the community uh, recovery website, livingsober.org.nz, um, is a great place to find out more and find her. Uh, Lotta, welcome back to Sunny in Seattle.
1: Hi, Sunny. Thanks for having me
0: yeah very excited I knew when you had another book coming out we had to get you back on the show and uh this one does not disappoint I really really enjoyed it and man it is a book that is um I mean you know more than I would about this but it seems like it is a very timely book right now for everything that we are seeing in the world particularly during the pandemic when I've been reading I'm curious if you don't mind just diving in there looking at all the articles on how sales of alcohol have just gone up exponentially during this pandemic um You know, I'm just curious what your thoughts are as you're looking out and seeing this and your book, you know, The Wine O'Clock Myth comes out right in the midst of all of this.
1: I mean, it makes perfect sense because so many people are using alcohol as an emotional coping mechanism and we live in societies that has it really liberalised and, and normalised and glorified even. And so at times of stress and anxiety and loneliness and boredom at times, if you're locked down, I mean, why wouldn't you go to that thing that has given you comfort? And, you know, alcohol is such a tricky drug because it actually works in the moment, you know. It gives you what you want. It gives you that dopamine hit and it instantly relaxes you, blurs your brain, quietens your thinking a little bit, you know, there's a reason (laughs) so many people drink all the time, but it's, it's temporary. This is what we know. And I just really want people to really open their eyes and be honest with themselves. Is it actually doing what you want?
0: Yeah. When you said it's no accident, but is it really doing, um, what, what we want it to be doing and, in reading the book, um, the Wine O'Clock Myth that you've just released, I noticed in the introduction, um, the date you listed there was September 2011. Um, was this, you, you were recalling a memory of waking up at 3 a.m. and, and yeah, things were not good. And is this your 10-year soberversary then, if I'm doing my math correctly?
1: Nine years I've just celebrated. So next year is a big year for me. I'm going to be 10 years sober and turning 50.
0: Oh, wow. Congratulations, Lotta. Yeah,
1: thank you. And I've decided to have a big party because I want to dance with my friends. And I now know that it's possible to have heaps of fun and not drink if you're surrounded by the right people and you're in the right kind of headspace. I mean, for years, I thought the only way to have fun was through alcohol. And I now realize it's just not true.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so let's I know you've been on the show before to talk about um, your memoir, Mrs. D is going without, which I happen to find. Um, I love listening to addiction and sobriety memoirs, um, and I do listen on Audible and I found yours there and um, I reached out to you as I would expressed and I talk about this on the show uh, pretty frequently that, you know, I've been questioning my own relationship with alcohol for years now. And uh, my use has has definitely diminished, but it's still in my life on the weekends and special occasions. And but even that I'm beginning to look at and wonder, huh, just as the question you ask at the very beginning, you know, is it doing what we want it to do? And I don't know that it is necessarily in the long run. Um I'm speaking for me particularly. Um but I'm I'm curious for you, for those who didn't hear our original interview and don't know your full story, um what how did you get to the point where you were questioning, is it doing what I want it to do? Or is my life really looking like what I want it to look like? Wait, what was your turning point?
1: How did I get to the point? Well, it was because i drank drunk steadily and heavily for over 20 years. You know, I just, from the age of 15 to the age of 39, I I basically drank pretty much every day it was just you know five o'clock literally was wine o'clock for me it's what I thought you did at the end of the day you had Mm -hmm. a glass of wine but you know as these things often goes not always but for a lot of us you know things progressed for me and I got very addicted and what happened was I started getting this internal dialogue and the people who have this will know what I'm talking about Mm -hmm. an internal dialogue with a little worried voice alongside my enthusiastic drinking voice. (laughs) And I had a to and fro, I'm worried. I'm okay. Is this normal? This is fine. I don't feel good. You're, you're fine. You deserve this. This is your treat and reward. You're a hardworking woman. And over the years at the end, that internal dialogue got louder and more intense because my drinking got more intense. You know, I just, I couldn't stop often. I, I, I'd say to myself, I'm only having one and I'd have five, you know, and I'd mm-hmm. wake up hungover again. And so I could just see really clearly that I wasn't in control of it anymore. And then the final straw for me was when I bought deceit into my marriage and I hid from my husband an empty bottle so that he didn't know how much I'd had to drink. And, that was it for me. I woke up the next morning. And you know a lot of people hide empty bottles. It's quite a common behavior for problem drinkers, but for me, it was just once, and it was enough. I woke up the next morning in floods of tears, really low, really stuck and miserable and and not trusting myself because I'd made so many deals with myself and broken them. I really didn't think I was capable of change, but I just that that final morning I woke up and I said, the alcohol has got, to go I'm out of control and I'm, I'm now lying about my drinking and so I made the decision it was terrifying I had no idea what was to come my life has changed completely
0: <laughs> yes and it's crazy to me that was nine going on 10 years ago uh and so much has happened in your life since then and I, I want to just ask on a on a broader scale because this is the work that you now do I have noticed um A lot of the teachers and mentors that I follow have stopped drinking, not because they hit a rock bottom, but because they just, again, were questioning, you know, is this is this doing what I wanted to do in my life? And they found it was better without. Um, I noticed they're sober curious is is a mainstream word these days. Yeah. And I just from where you sit, like from an evolutionary perspective if we or if we you know if consciousness is evolving do you feel like this is an indicator of human evolution that we're questioning this before it hits a rock bottom that we may many of us are eliminating this substance from our life before it becomes unmanageable just because we realize life can be better we feel better we are we are we're just happier a greater sense of well-being without it in our lives i mean what are your thoughts on that as a trend
1: Oh, absolutely. I think we're heading for a shift as humans. Um, When I say we're heading for it, it may be another 30 years before we get to the point where we are with cigarettes, which is that most of us look at it now and say, well, cigarettes cause cancer. You know, it's not good for us. We don't have it marketed. We don't have cigarette companies sponsoring sports events. You know, I don't know what it's like where you live, but smoking mm. is a bit out. You're a bit of an outcast if you smoke here. Now, yeah. I know it's not, I know it's not like that everywhere. And there's parts of Asia, for example, where smoking is still in Europe, very widespread. But as a as a species, we've kind of woken up you know more to cigarettes and I do think humans are smart we're going to do the same thing with alcohol we we you know alcohol causes cancer the science is unequivocal but most people don't know that because the 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 um machine that is big alcohol, the liquor industry, does a very good job of muddying the waters around those facts. That industry is very big, very powerful, and they just want to protect their bottom lines. And so they're promoting this liquid left, right and centre as being a good thing, and it's not. And I, I, like I say, humans are smart, and we will get to a point where I think the culture shifts. It's Alcohol's not going away. I mean, you know, just like smoking has it, people... And nor should it. People can choose to do what they want to do. But we've let the pendulum swing way too far in the pro-booze direction. And I absolutely do believe that we are heading for a change. I just don't know that the change is now. Um, You know, 2020, what a year. There is so so much going on, um, you know, and people are focusing on other things. But the way I've been putting it lately is uh, alcohol is the elephant in the room. Yeah, it absolutely is. And and all I'm trying to do is just reach out to individuals and say, if you're worried, if you're stuck, if you've got that little inner dialogue going on right now, you're not alone. Reach out and connect with people who feel the same, because there's a lot of us who are seeing the light <laughs> and changing our lives.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's just one after another. These teachers that I followed for a really long time, some of them are revealing that they have completely eliminated alcohol. And again, not because their lives were the, the way that they tell it anyway, it's not because they'd had a per se rock bottom moment. I mean, these were just people who used it socially from time to time, but even that became, they felt like it was affecting the, the, the uh, what do you call it? Not just the risks, but the negative effects far outweighed what positive it brought to their life. And I thought, wow, this is such an interesting trend to b- witness because, goodness, I never saw that, thought I would see that happen. But um, anyway, I'm, I'm very excited for I've, all of the positive effects that it's clearly having in people's lives like yours, um, and so many others. And so I'm, it, this particular book started, it came about, it sounds like you started writing it um, around seven to eight years into your sobriety journey. And it, from what I understand, and I'm just curious, you know, really, what did lead to this book that as you were running this uh, the community recovery website there in New Zealand, and again that website is livingsober.org.nz. Um, as you were really working with people who are were earlier in their recovery, as you were progressing in your own journey. Um, you write that you had this nagging concern and you said there was a massive disconnect between what you're hearing from people about their struggles with alcohol and then the lie being perpetuated by how it's positioned in our society. So, uh, you know, what what led to this book really or what do you hope for it?
1: I mean, it was twofold. So yes, it was um, it was looking around and just being really bothered, bothered by the fact that because this environment we've created is so pro-alcohol, it isolates people who are struggling. And so I kept hearing from women and men who are really miserable and, and feeling ashamed, like there's something wrong with them, like they're bad or broken. And so they're hiding and they're not reaching out for help and they're just feeling awful. And And that's because of this culture we've created, which makes you think everyone's having a great time on alcohol because that's what's presented to us visually. And it just bothers me, because the truth is that most, well, not most, but a lot of people aren't. You know, some people are. They can have a very casual relationship with it, but a lot of people can't and don't. And so I just think this is not fair, (laughs) and this is awful, and this is isolating people and making them feel ashamed. And so that's why I wanted to write this book. The other thing, if I'm really honest, is I sort of got to a bit of a crossroads in my life where I was thinking, what am I doing with my life. Uh, I yeah. need, I need a job. And so <laughs> I, I went to a career coach and I had all these sessions about what I could do. And she came up with all these ideas that were kind of random but interesting. And then I thought, you know what, I actually, I'm not quite done yet with the, with the book thing. I need to mm. write this one final book, which is everything I see and have learned not just about myself but about other people and and that's why I wrote it if if you want to know what I think about alcohol it's in this book and <laughs> yeah. as you know there's also all these other women's stories 20 amazing stories told in the first person of women who have been brave enough to open up about their intimate relationship with booze because we've all got one yeah you know and I'm not special I'm just another former um problem drinker who got sober there's many of us and so i don't want it to be all about me you know i've written the memoirs let me share other people's stories and so that's why i really wanted to gather in these other stories and i end the book by saying to people talk to your girlfriends talk to your sisters your mothers your grandmothers your daughters your cousins your aunties talk to them honestly about alcohol because we are hiding a lot of the truth
0: yes and that was exactly where i wanted to go with this uh one of my next questions one of the things that stood out to me and you write about, which is, this is so interesting to me, given you have a history in um, and, and broadcasting and communications, television, et cetera. You worked as a TV journalist. Your husband is a well-known TV personality in New Zealand. And you were writing about um, pretty early in your journey, your first TV appearance. And you'd been writing this blog, Mrs. D is going without. At first, it was just your recovery tool. And then this blog that you kind of thought was private, people started discovering and commenting on and it just blew up. And what I saw in this book that I thought was so interesting, you said that your first TV appearance when you're getting interviewed about this blog that you had started for yourself, but it become a tool for other people as well. Your hits on your blog after your first TV appearance went from 1500 to 45,000 that to me just shows this is something that is happening behind closed doors for so many people and i love that you're bringing this into conversation um i think things like this that we have previously hidden that now there's a conversation started where we can say we're not so alone um and i know i'm I'm stacking a lot here a lot of so i apologize but just this idea of shame and hiding and the outpouring that happened after your first TV appearance, um, and, and how vulnerable you were to do that. What are your thoughts around shame and bringing this to light and being vulnerable and talking about this in public? I mean,
1: shame is crippling and it kept me stuck for many years because I felt so ashamed about the fact that I was drinking the way I was. Um, and, you know, you talk about the vulnerability and it is it is scary to open up. And, yes, I went on the telly, you know, they wanted to do a big documentary on me because what I was doing was so unusual. I mean, it just goes to show how many people are hiding because, you know, I'm not. I'm not even that remarkable, I mean, I'm not playing myself down, but I don't want to play myself up either. I am just a, a a suburban housewife who, yes, I've got the ability to communicate. But here I was just admitting that I had a problem with alcohol, and I was on the top rating TV show in New Zealand talking about that because no one else does. <laughs> <laughs> and you know it kind of helped that my husband had a high profile job. And I was able to articulate things um, in a way that was clear and and easy to understand. And so that's what put me in that position to do it. And I was happy to do it because I really, really do want to help other people. It it is scary. And, and, uh, you know, you can have times. I have times where I feel raw and vulnerable. I mean, even this last book, which is my third book, and I've been doing media for for five or six years now on this topic of being an alcoholic but i went on the tv here in new zealand a couple of months ago when the book came out here and it was awful they were just cold they were just
0: Mm. they were
1: just weren't really that sort of interested in me i don't know why they had me on i I felt really awkward i didn't like how i looked and i cried um that night (laughs) after it went on the tv i cried and i had Mm. to have a cuddle with mr d and I mean, that was really horrible. But um, I don't let it stop me uh, because, because I don't know if I'm allowed to say this word, but bugger it. Oh I, there's too many people that are struggling. And so I feel like I've put my big girl pants on and just keep on doing it because... Um, I want people to know you're not alone. this is this is an addictive drug. You know, you're not bad or weak because you got addicted to it. And if it takes a few tears for me occasionally to stand up and I'm okay, I'm in a good relationship, I'm in a good place in my life. um i'm I'm happily sober, and I'm going to keep doing this because I want to reach people and let them know they're not alone
0: yeah and that is one of the things that i have loved about your work uh the the memoirs as well as this latest book is that you do not sugarcoat you know going to some of your first social functions and having wardrobe malfunctions and feeling awkward and all of the things but you're just so uh human and your presentation and it makes it so approachable and that's i think one of the reasons like i say i was very drawn to your work and and I giggle so many times reading it because, man, I've been there and I think I just appreciate you putting it on paper so that the rest of us don't feel so alone.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? I just, I don't know why I do it. I mean, my mom <laughs> says I'm a show-off, but um, I can't help but be honest, you know, and, I, and I'm really honest. So I'm going to be honest now. I'm not perfectly perfect. I still have issues with food. I can turn to it the same way I did with alcohol and eat you know, the worst kinds of food to the point where I feel physically sick um, Mm. if I'm in an emotional slump. So I still turn to substances. Like, I'm still a messy human. (laughs) You know, I'm a work in progress, and I'm trying really hard to be perfect, but of course I'm not, because none (laughs) of us are. And so, yeah, I just, I I don't know. There's something, I think, honestly, Sunny, I think I was living with shame for so long and hidden. Now that I've ripped the Band-Aid off, I just, it's part of what keeps me well is this honesty and just sharing things because people relate to it and it helps me you know I, I, I it helps me to be honest I don't want to ever go back to that shameful dark lonely place and so I just talk about it all
0: I <laughs> yes, well I'm so glad that you do <laughs> And one of the other things I noticed, I know we're getting close to our time for a break, but one of the other things that I've noticed um, in your writing between first book to now, um, I feel like your voice has just gotten stronger and your passion is even more palpable. You are you are a strong voice in this movement. I'm just curious if you could speak to that a little bit, because um, one of the things I did notice in all these wonderful stories you've uh, collected of the the women here that you were sharing, um, is that when we are still in the throes of addiction or, or alcohol abuse or misuse, that we lose our self-confidence, we lose our self-esteem and our self-worth. And I feel like you, over this journey of n- nine going on 10 years sober, you have just got, you have, your strength is palpable. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Oh, thank you
1: for saying that. Cause I don't always feel like that. Um, yeah, this is new territory for me, this book. And I have been quite brave because um sharing your story is one thing but it's very you know hard to criticize someone who's just being super honest about themselves but i've actually pointed the finger now at this environment that we live in i've pointed the finger at big alcohol i've analyzed what goes on on social media i've talked to scientists and epidemiologists about cancer i've talked about the marketing and the manipulation and all this stuff which is um really important to talk about but yeah it's a bit scary and um, uh, yeah I was a wee wee bit nervous about it when when it was coming out because it is new territory but again I'm just like well what's the worst thing that can happen like I'm, I'm pretty shielded from any I mean I mean, touch wood, <laughs> I don't know what's coming, but I'm pretty shielded from any real repercussions because yeah. um, I'm just living my life in suburbia with my husband and kids and have and been brave in a book. I haven't had any pushback, but I t- to be fair, I think it's because the book hasn't had a monumental impact where it's really gone out into the mainstream it's it's bubbling away nicely it's been a success but um I don't think the liquor industry sees me as a great threat so I'm just trying to take every opportunity I can which is why I'm so grateful to you for putting me on to, to talk about the truth because come on people open your eyes to alcohol <laughs> do it <laughs>
0: Yes. Okay. On that note, we're going to take our break. Um, When we come back, we will continue the conversation. I am joined today by Lada Dan. Um, She has been on the show before for her memoir, Mrs. D is going without, and she has a new book out, The Wine O'Clock Myth, which we are talking about here today. Um, You are listening to Sunny in Seattle, and we will be back in just a few. The preceding audio was via a Skype call. Hi, I'm Dr. Shelley Flace with today's tip for kids from the American Academy of Pediatrics. If you own firearms, it's your responsibility to make sure they're always stored safely. Hiding them in a closet or drawer is not enough. Kids know where they are. Research shows the risk of injury and death is lower if guns are stored unloaded and locked up with the ammunition locked in a separate place. This is important when children are young as well as when they grow into teenagers. For more, talk with your pediatrician or visit healthychildren.org. Sunny in Seattle, radio that positively shines. Our veterans risked it all to protect our freedom. One of the best ways to say thank you is to volunteer to support them. At a time in history where kindness is a virtue, volunteering means a lot. For over 47 years, Help Heal Veterans, a not-for-profit organization, with the support of citizens like you, have delivered therapy kits to veterans who need them. To volunteer or learn more, visit HealVets.org. That's HeelVets.org. Find our app in the Apple App Store or Google Play Store and take us with you wherever you go. Alternative Talk, AM 1150. Welcome back to Sunny in Seattle. I'm your host, Sunny Joy, joined today by Lana Dan, who has a new book out, The Wine O'Clock Myth. Um, So I want to just address the book structure you had mentioned that you have included um, many stories of women from that you, you it sounds like you put the call out and were just inundated with responses of women who wanted to share their stories about their relationship with alcohol. Um, and then also uh, the book is divided into five parts, each containing really a broad theme, exploring a different aspect of the subject of women and alcohol. So you talk about our boozy world, you talk about what alcohol is doing with us, doing to us, talk about how we're being played by the big alcohol industry, uh, talking about what lies beneath our alcohol use, misuse, abuse, and moving on from actually uh, having alcohol as a part of your life in a culture. um, You and I are in different countries, but I'd say it's in terms of alcohol promotion and use, it's pretty similar in New Zealand and the United States. We're we're big drinking countries. Um, So yeah, moving on and that being an act of cultural rebellion really to do that. Um, So just so you know, listeners get a broad view of what's included in the book. And of course your story is interspersed throughout that as well. I'm curious, lotta, you know how how did you decide to include these stories of women and and how did you pick from all of the various responses that apparently came in when you put the call out?
1: Can I just say one thing before I say that? Oh please. That the structure of the book is actually the thing I'm most proud of oh. because it was really hard <laughs> because you know if we're looking at a topic, women and alcohol, it's like massive. Yeah. There's, there's so much to cover, and how do you get that in a form which kind of makes sense, flows, is interesting and easy to follow, and it took a lot of work. I had massive sheets of cardboard, and I had you know post-its, and I'd move things around, and then I went into Google Docs, and I created all these different docs, and I would reorder them and restructure them that was one of the biggest jobs let alone the writing and, and gathering the women's stories was just putting it into a uh a structure i'm actually really proud of but um to well. all, thank <laughs> you um how did i pick look i didn't really i just i just it was hard because i put a call out on my facebook page for women who were still drinking to talk to me and anonymously if they like um And I was inundated, you know, I had 50, 60 women who I didn't know um, personally at all message me privately and say, I'll talk to you, which is incredible. And many of them didn't give a lot of detail. So the odd one did, and I could say, okay, that'd be something good to cover. You know, I was trying to get a range of stories. But at the end of the day, Sunny, every woman has a complex, nuanced varied story that's going to cover a lot of bases so i wasn't too worried in the end i just sort of picked it random um and often i didn't know what they were going to say until we sat down to do the interview or i phoned them up and um and oh my goodness the stories that came out i mean there's a beautiful woman who talked about having suffered um childhood sexual abuse from a neighbor She didn't even know she was going to tell me that before we talked. And it just came out in the course of our conversation. And um, that trauma shaped her whole life and certainly her relationship with alcohol. And she was so brave and so willing to, you know, open up. And by the way, she's now sober, Mm. which is great. She's been messaging me. Um, Yeah, so I just sort of randomly picked. And then so I wanted half women who were still drinking and half who were sober to give an accurate you know and and one person who's actually got a very moderate relationship just to represent that as well and um yeah and i just sort of dotted them throughout the book um i don't know if you noticed but the first half of the book is more women who are still drinking and as the book progresses we get into more of the women who are sober stories
0: yes <laughs> Yes, absolutely. Um, Yeah. And I I recognize myself in so many of those stories, which I think has got to be uh, one of the even though the stories are all unique, there are some really universal themes in there. Um, And one of the things that I, I want, I would love to talk about Lada. that was this was not something when I was in my 20s, probably even early 30s before I really started looking at and I'm now in my mid 40s. So um, one of the things that I didn't realize was I thought you talk about self medicating in the book and the various reasons for example the woman whose story you just mentioned who had a history of childhood trauma which you talk about in the book being one of those factors that can contribute to addiction in adulthood um, but uh, one of the things that I noticed throughout the, these stories where that, um, and in my own journey again of doing some research on this, I never would have connected anxiety, depression, low self-worth, low self-confidence, and and you even talk about um, wouldn't Let's see, what? How did you put it? Oh goodness, there was this. Oh, I'll have to find that quote. Anyway, it was it was something along the lines of that over time your negative self-talk had become had increased exponentially, and so there are all these. These things that I never had associated with alcohol use, anxiety, depression, shame, um, uh, the internal self-talk, critical self-talk. Can you speak to that a little bit for people who haven't made that connection yet, that there is a strong connection between these these mental issues that we can have and alcohol?
1: Yeah, and I mean, again, it makes sense why so many people drink. The drug works. If you've got an internal dialogue, which is um, which is less than um, calm, say whether that be anxiety, whether that be negative self talk, whether that be insecurity, whether that be stuff that's happened in your past that you're worried about, all that stuff. Our brains, you know, are amazing and also complicated things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, we have this internal stuff going on that is often, you know, even if it's low grade, um, is, is hard. And then if you're actually really struggling with anxiety or depression or any of that stuff, you know, it's impossible to get away from. Alcohol quietens that for a time. It, it, you know, it does what we want. And we are constantly in our own heads you know we're all we're all stars of the movie right this movie <laughs> called life i'm the star of my movie are you the star of yours <laughs> we're yeah. completely you know self focused because we are, we are inside our own heads and we hear our own thoughts and if it's not a happy place to be and you're there 24/7 um and you don't have any really good grounding strategies that i certainly didn't alcohol is um is a solution. It works. It numbs your thinking, it quietens the thoughts, it takes you away from yourself. It gives you courage where maybe you're feeling a bit insecure. It loosens your tongue if maybe you're a bit shy and you want to be a bit more social. It does all those things. And so, but again it's temporary it's a flawed mechanism and it actually can make things worse because then you don't trust yourself that you've got the natural ability to calm yourself down or be social or whatever. So again with that section of the book I just want to really get people to actually properly look at it um, and analyze it is this actually working for me? it's n- it does nothing for anxiety and depression you know it, it, it makes it worse in fact.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, I know, I know if I have had alcohol the day before that, I just, because I I'm using it now probably about once or twice a week, uh, Friday or Saturday. And that's been a, that's been a practice of mine for probably three or four years now, which has worked really well, except I know, even if I have two glasses of wine or beer, I don't really drink hard spirits anymore, but even if I just have two glasses the next day, my mental state is such a mess. And I just That's know yeah. you, can't, you can't listen to the thoughts the day after because they're not good.
1: No, they're not. And let me just explain very briefly the science behind that. So yeah. uh, alcohol releases dopamine in the brain, a lot of it. It pushes out more dopamine than you would naturally get. That's the feel-good chemical. That's why we drink it. We like the dopamine. The brain is clever. If, if it's getting a drug in there that's pushing out a chemical, the brain goes, whoa, this is a lot. I'm going to downregulate. And so your dopamine receptors actually thin out. And so the next day, or over time, especially if you are a daily drinker like I was, your natural dopamine receptor state is very low, very diminished. And so that's when you actually need the drug just to give you a normal amount of dopamine. People talk about, I just have a drink to feel normal. That's because their brains have adapted And so, um, you know, you're sort of fighting against your brain, which is adjusted because of the drug. And so even if you only have once or twice a week, when you wake up in the morning, as you say, you're feeling a bit bleak. You don't want to be listening to your thoughts. That's because your brain's just recovering from all that dopamine it pushed out the night before. And it's, it's pulled right back. So your your natural brain chemistry is constantly being affected by this drug. And the good news is when you stop drinking, it, re- it recovers. I now get lovely natural dopamine, not all the time because that's not the way life goes. But when I do get that feel-good chemical genuinely, not from a drug,
0: it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. And one of the other things that I noticed, um, something in your book really reminded me, um, I interviewed, oh gosh, at the beginning of 2020, Laura McCallan, who wrote We Are the Luckiest. Um, and she has a really strong social media presence. If um, I strongly recommend adding people like Lotta Dan and Laura McCallan and others um, who are in this movement um, to really help balance out what you're getting in regular mainstream news and social media feeds and culture. But anyway- yeah. One of the things that I that I noticed in her book and yours is that uh, you wrote, this is, let's see, yeah, you wrote, sobriety unwittingly leads me to discover my true strength, which is writing about personal stuff and what is going on inside my head. And Laura McCowan said the same thing, that when she stopped drinking, it was like this conduit was opened and the words just poured forth and the inspiration was readily available all the time. And I'm just curious if you think this is pretty true across the board, even if writing is not your thing, that when we stop drinking and have this natural sense of well-being and not all of our energy is going toward trying to maintain or sustain, you know, that up and the down and all that, that that really our natural gifts come through maybe for the first time in our life yes yes
1: yes and you're so right for me and for laura and for others it happened to be writing and that's why we're the people doing books and podcasts and things but for other people they d- they might discover, ugh, I mean, I don't even know, gardening, cooking, um, business, you know, making decisions under pressure about how to run a company. Um, whatever your actual natural ability is really can only come out and shine once you take away um, all that messing with your brain chemistry and kind of numbing and avoiding and distracting. It, the thing is, it takes time. So don't expect it to happen immediately. And there will one of the things about getting sober is you have to become comfortable with discomfort. Yes. And I spent 20 plus years trying to avoid dis- emotional discomfort, particularly sadness. I didn't want to feel sad ever. I now know, after nine years of not drinking, that I'm naturally a very watery person. I just, <laughs> I just am. I'm, I'm watery. I cry. I cry. This is what I do. I cry when I get you know I feel other people's emotions. I cry when I feel any kind of emotion of my own. That's just who I am. Mm-hmm. And and that's okay. Um but I had to I had to learn how to get comfortable with that. So yes, I've discovered I can write. I'm writing books, you know, yay fabulous me, but at the same time, I've also discovered I'm very watery. I've also discovered <laughs> you know, other things about myself. So there's a transition and you just have to take it gently and slowly and, and trust in the process and only good things come, even if it gets worse initially, ultimately only good things come.
0: Yeah. And that was, I love how you put it. You realized at some point, that you had been an A-grade emotion avoider until you got sober and got you. So I can't say the word on air, but gosh darn emotional was <laughs> really what um, was what you said. And I think for so many people, that sitting with uncomfortable emotions is the hardest part. Like when the cravings come, we're trying to avoid something. Our brain wants the the easy button, um, but you really developed. One of the one I want to ask you about this, particularly, you did not end up doing any um, like a 12 step program along the way. And I'm not advocating one way or the other. I'm always just curious what people's journey is like. You actually engaged with some other modalities and practices, uh, if I remember correctly, from your journey. Do you mind speaking a little bit about how like the, the modalities and practices that you employed, To sit with uncomfortable emotions, to deal with the thoughts, the the really active mind chatter, those kinds of things.
1: Yeah. So, um, just quickly on AA, it is here in New Zealand quite strongly, and I've got some dear, dear friends who absolutely love their fellowship and Mm -hmm. um, the 12 steps has changed their lives. It's such a powerful, you know, program that works for a lot of people. It's not as big here as it is, I know, in America. It's the very dominant. you know, pathway to recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, I I never reached out. I was too nervous to go to AA meetings, and you know that shame we talked about. And I was quite sort of, and I don't know what it says about my personality, but I just sort of set out to do it on my own. Mm-hmm. Luckily for me, I decided to blog, and I discovered online community, and I and I wasn't alone for long, and I was surrounded by like-minded people because we really need like-minded people who understand what it's like to have that internal dialogue. My husband, he's not that person. He doesn't have it. And so I needed to find others. Um, So that was the main sort of tool I had early on, was that community. But over time, I realised I had no coping mechanisms to deal with, you know, my watery side or any kind of, you know, anger that I might feel or frustration or insecurity, any of my stuff. I had no strategies. I I was very unwell. I didn't have things in my life to look after my wellness. Um, and these are small, subtle things that, you know, it's not that quick fix of a glass of Chardonnay. It's little things that you do on a regular basis to just maintain your mental, physical, spiritual and community wellness. And I've had to develop them and I have slowly over time and they shift and change always. But, you know, simple things like I go to yoga once a week in my local rec centre in my baggie tights I'm not trendy at all but I love it and if I and it's one hour a week and it is important we have a dog I walk the dog it's again it's like what's dog walking but it's it's enough to get me out into nature to get me away from my devices to to you know get me in the fresh air and thinking about other things it's just all of these little things and I'm very clear now that these are part of my wellness plan I have learned how to knit Sunny Uh, (laughs) I'm knitting a shawl it's taken me about four months but I'm nearly finished (laughs) so it's just about having tools in your toolbox I learned mindfulness I do practice mindfulness I don't meditate but I I consciously practice mindfulness I notice when my thoughts are running away and I'm I'm spending way too much time ruminating on things and I bring myself down into the moment, literally what are my hands doing? What can my eyes see? You know, that kind of mindfulness where I try and ground myself in my physical body and the current moment I'm in. And so I'm much better now at looking after myself, but I still, like I said before, I still turn to food. I still, you know, can get upset and stuck on things. I'm not perfect, but I'm much better now at going, recognizing when i'm in a rut and acting to pull myself out of it and the other thing i've learned now is that life ebbs and flows you know there's phases that are really tricky 2020 feels like a particularly tricky phase but you know there's phases that are tricky and then there's phases that are more easeful so i just kind of go with the flow a bit more now yeah it's a beautiful thing
0: yeah and and it's very evident in your writing that your practices that you use are dialed in. Um, and you really, you have all the tools now that perhaps you didn't have before. Um, and one of the things that I think I hear the most from people who are, who are uh, either, I guess, changing their relationship with alcohol or have eliminated it completely are those cravings. Let's say, for example, you know, at five o'clock is the time frame that one has decided that that's when they get their glass of wine. Your brain is already anticipating it by releasing dopamine and getting you excited about it. Mm-hmm. Like What happens when you remove the alcohol or let's say someone out there listening, it's food for them or it's something else entirely that the cigarette. How do people deal with cravings at the beginning or what advice do you give?
1: Uh, We always talk about the three Ds, delay, distract, and drink water. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So cravings, they come in waves and they peak in intensity. And it helps if you can be curious about the craving and talk about it out loud. I'm having a craving right now. I really could murder a glass of wine or a a jam donut. Um, Talk about it, see it for what it is, you know, feel it, do something. Oh, I'm having a craving. I used to clean the house. I'm scrubbing the bathroom at five <laughs> o'clock because I'm having this craving. And then it would whew, it would lessen a bit. It would pass. And then I'd imagine myself. I always talk about visualization as a really, really powerful tool. Visualize yourself climbing into bed not having had a drink or a cigarette or whatever the thing is. Visualize yourself waking up in the morning knowing that you didn't pick up. I mean, you never wake up in the morning regretting not drinking the night before. And so visualize that moment. And I would it would push me through the evening of the cravings. Um, and sure enough, I'd wake up the next morning. And then slowly over time, you know, this is the beautiful thing about the human brain. Um, slowly over time, the cravings lessen and lessen until they fade altogether.
0: And that's the one thing I never used to believe this when I would hear people say this, that who had been, it felt to me like anyone who was sober was white knuckling it, whether that had been one year or 50 years, it was all one big white knuckle. But I have come to believe from particularly stories like yours and others. And I want to emphasize this because I think it should provide, or I hope that it will provide hope, but that you, you, you say, I simply love being sober. And I believe it. You, you say that the cravings it's been, you didn't I think the way that you put it in this this latest book is that you don't want to put an exact time frame on it to provide an expectation because everybody's going to be different I would assume because we're undoing decades of programming and neural pathways that have been firing a certain way but you can confidently say you don't have the cravings and you love being sober Could
1: you say more about that? (laughs) Genuinely, I mean, this is the thing. I don't miss alcohol at all. I never, ever crave it. I look at it. I even poured it into a um, soup the other day because the recipe called for it and cooked off the booze so that it's not alcoholic. I had no desire. Honestly, that stuff holds no attraction for me. And this is remarkable because for 20-plus years, it was my everything. I firmly believed it was vital important and I physically craved it and now all of that has gone and I think it's a really important distinction to make because we talk about being in recovery and I'm in recovery from my alcohol addiction and I think you're right a lot of people assume that that means I'm every day I'm trying hard not to drink no it's not about that being in recovery is a process of wellness being in recovery means I'm constantly looking at how I'm doing with my emotional management and what I need to put in place. Maybe maybe the yoga's not enough. Maybe I need to start doing swimming. Maybe I've been a bit stuck and the knitting's not good. Maybe I need to, you know, reach out and connect with more people. That being in recovery is, what they say is abstinence is an event. Recovery is a process. Ooh. And so I have no desire to drink. I don't even care for it. You know, it holds no power over me, which is great. But... I'm now a person who lives with her raw emotion every day. And that's what being in recovery is about, is managing that.
0: Yeah, I have, uh, was listening to Glennon Doyle, um, an interview with her the other day, and I think she even says this explicitly in her latest book, Untamed, but that every day since she has gotten sober has been hard for her because it's emotional, but she wouldn't trade it for the world. <laughs>
1: yeah, I know. We try and convey that. You know, just because I'm saying I'm having a gritty time at the moment doesn't mean I'm thinking about drinking. It just means I'm having a gritty
0: time. Yeah. Yes. And I just, I want to read, this is a whole paragraph, but the way that you say this, I just, the feeling that it embodies for me, for someone out there who needs that glimmer of hope. I just, I want to read this full paragraph from the book. Um, and again, I'm I'm speaking of uh, Lada's latest book, which is the wine o'clock myth. Um, and so, this is you talking about being sober. I cannot say it loudly enough. I simply love being sober. I have not had to reach for a substance to relax me or lift me up. I love having better strategies for dealing with tough stuff. I love having extra money in my pocket to spend on both um, bath bombs and fancy teas. I love being able to rely on myself at all times to deal with things to the best of my ability. I love not having to check my phone or Facebook account to see if I sent any embarrassing messages the night before. I love kissing my kids goodnight and not breathing wine fumes all over their faces. I love waking up every morning with no hangover. I love knowing myself better and understanding my moods properly for the first time. I love that I get touched by things that are touching moved by things that are moving, frustrated by things that are frustrating, lifted up by things that are uplifting. I love that I watch TV until late at night and remember what happened. I love that I inwardly flip the bird to every uh, bullcrap marketing message trying to catch my eye. I love that I'm part of a cool sober gang of brave and amazing people. I love that it's so cheap when I go out to bars and restaurants now. I love that I'm never slurry or stumbly or embarrassingly sloppy. I love remembering every detail of everything. I love that my skin and hair are healthier and i've lost weight. I love laying my sober head on the pillow at night. I love living sober. Ah, oh, that's so beautiful, lotta. Oh,
1: it is. <laughs> I haven't read that for ages, but that sums it
0: up. Oh. Yeah. And actually that brings us right to the end of the show. We've got less than a minute left, but you know, lada before we wrap up, is there any message that anything we didn't touch on that you want to leave our listeners with today?
1: Just believe that change is possible. Really believe it. Even if you're totally stuck right now and you can't imagine it, believe it because it's true.
0: Yeah. And I just have to say, uh, again, I'll reemphasize, we are so inundated with messages and programming from a very young age, particularly in the United States and New Zealand, and I'm sure some other places around the world, that alcohol is a part of life being fun and you can't live without it. But put people in your social media feed and and expose yourself to these resources. And the more you begin hearing these messages, the desire for change and the awareness around it um, becomes possible. So in any event, Lotta, thanks so much for putting this book out into the world. Thanks so much for coming back to Sunny in Seattle. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. You have been listening to Sunny in Seattle. I have been interviewing Lotta Dan, who has just released her latest book, The Wine O'Clock Myth. Um, You can find out more about her. Also find out, uh, excuse me, her uh, uh, community uh, recovery website, livingsober.org.nz. That's livingsober.org.nz to find out more about her and all of the work she is doing in the world. Thanks for joining us, everyone. This is Sunny signing off.